everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Santa Clara Law Professor David Ball. Welcome to our show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, at the law school? Okay, uh, so I, let's see, I came, I think maybe relevant for your audience is that um, I did uh, organizing as an undergrad. Um, I was uh, one of the sort of founders of the national part of what was called the Student Environmental Action Coalition, uh, which, uh, um, which was in the you know, late 80s, early 90s. Unfortunately, it imploded right after uh, I graduated, but that's a whole different story in terms of how one handles succession, especially if one is committed to uh, sort of sh- power sharing. You have to share power with people who are also committed to power sharing. Um, then I went to Oxford, and then when I came back uh, to New York, I did a bunch of different things. I was an improvisational comedian and you know actor and filmmaker. And then after 9-11 in New York, um, I did a lot of organizing uh, in the Muslim community, of which I'm a member, uh, sort of doing uh, interfaith and intrafaith. Um, one of the issues uh, or one of the opportunities, I guess I should say, uh, in you know, sort of New York City is that um, you know, the Muslim population is incredibly, incredibly ethnically diverse. Um, and so that was sort of my background um, before um, we moved out here. And so uh, we moved out here and uh, I went to law school because it was sort of my turn to pull the sled um, after my wife had done that. Uh, you know, those are improvisational comedian, you might be surprised to know, not a really lucrative career. Um, so um, I went to Stanford Law School, and when I got there, you know, I, I really was taken with the um, the sort of civil and human rights dimensions of mass incarceration. My wife is, um, you know, she's a human rights lawyer, um, and so uh, I sort of said, all right, well, you take the international, I'll take domestic, um, and so uh, I really got very interested in that. And then my senior, my, sorry, my senior year, my third year in law school, uh, we had a visitor. Her name is Joan Petercelia. Unfortunately, she passed away um, a couple of years ago. But Joan was a criminologist who really worked on um, prisons and incar- you know, the effects of incarceration, which was novel at the time for a law school to have a criminologist. And it's also novel for law schools to have considered what happens after 
you know, the sentence is issued. And so that really opened my eyes up to uh, what I saw as being um, a topic that was not explored nearly enough in, in the legal academy. And, and there are lots and lots of other scholars who do that now, right? I mean, and, and who did that even then. So, you know, there's Margot Schlanger at the University of Michigan Law School. There's um, Sharon Dolovich at the University of uh, UCLA Law School. There's, you know, my sort of co-chair for the uh, ABA Corrections Committee uh, at UC Irvine, Karamet Ryder. There are folks at Davis um, who do the same stuff. Uh, Jack Chin is, you know, just my favorite, but, you know, there, there are plenty of others. So, um, but that really was my where I started uh, being interested. And after I clerked, I worked for a year at the Stanford Criminal Justice Center as a fellow, um, really working on um, some projects that dealt with, um, you know, data and operations integration in California. You know, we have a bunch of different uh, law enforcement agencies. We have 58 jails. Well, Alpine actually doesn't have their own jail, but, you know, we have more than 50 jails, um, in jail systems, many more jails than that. Um, and we don't, we didn't, we don't, and we didn't do a very good job of tracking, you know, sort of why people enter the system, what we do to prevent them from re-entering the system, you know, sort of any of these sort of very, very basic management kinds of things. And so that really was the start of, that's how I got into this line of work. But, but I mentioned the sort of organizing and the policy stuff because I've always seen that as being part of what I bring to the table uh, as, you know, sort of a law professor is that I've got one foot in the policy world, you know, really coming at it as sort of an organizer who's interested in these kinds of things. And then my writing, you know, sort of helps. Uh, that's my new puppy. Sorry about that. Uh, my, <laughs> she's very tough on crime, which includes squirrels and everybody who walks past our house. Um, so, and I have yet to enlighten her about that, but you know, lots of people don't listen to me. Um, so that's the, that's the real background of, you know, uh, what, what has gotten me uh, sort of where I am today, where I do, you know, I do policy. I'm really interested in, in trying to help change the world, help shrink, you know, uh, the, the footprint of mass incarceration uh, in the state, locally and nationally, uh, but also the kinds of things that I, that I write about and research are really, um, I hope, done with an eye toward, you know, really helping people think of new solutions or, you know, just intensely practical solutions, so. One of the interesting things as I listen to you describe that is I've often thought that the world's kind of caught up to the space I was already inhabiting. And it sounds like the world is kind of caught up to the space that you've inhabited. Yeah. I mean, you know, I learned from a lot of other people, you know, and, and it's funny, you know, I think about this uh, sometimes when I was actually just thinking about this today, you know, I, I really like listening to music and there are some, you know, that music is this very human, you know, where everyone is borrowing from everybody else. It's bad when it's exploitative, but like we are, you know, we listen to each other, you know, we're no that not that different from birds or other animals. And so I do, you know, I know this is Dawkins theory of the meme, but, you know, I learned from a lot of people and, you know, in turn, I hope that, you know, I've helped, you know, some of them think about new things. And so there's really, I'm really pleased that this conversation has moved 
you know, where it is moving. But I also think that I wouldn't necessarily say that I was, you know, sort of standing apart and everybody caught up next to me, that I was sort of a part of an organism or, a, you know, a communication network that, you know, where certain signals were getting amplified and, and you know, um, that spills out. But I continue, I have to say, and to learn from so many people, and I think it's really important as an academic that you always talk to folks who are system impacted. Uh, and one of the reasons, one of the ways I've gotten, you know, most of my really good ideas is by talking to people and saying, you know, I ask them three questions. What do you wish everybody knew, you know, about what it's like to be, you know, uh, poor in San Jose, you know, or, or you know, a, a prisoner in, you know, the California state prison system. What's one thing that you wish everybody knew? What's one thing that everybody thinks they know, but they misunderstand, right? So the common misunderstanding. And then what do you wish you knew, you know? And, you know, and so when you ask those questions, you get at least one person who's interested in the research that you're going to do at the end of it. So it's not just my long-suffering wife who has to read my article, but it's like, hey, that thing that you said you were interested in, here you go. Um, and, and, you know, that, so that again is, I think, a, a better way of dealing with it. All right. See if I can, well, she's chewing on her bones. So sorry about that. No problem. Um, so uh, can you talk about, you know, what the Corrections Committee at the ABA um, is and uh, what your role is? Sure. So the American Bar Association is the largest association of American lawyers. And um, and so I became the co-chair when I was invited by a woman named Giovanna Shea, um, who had written some stuff about prisons that I really liked. Um, and then she moved off that to become, you know, to work as a public defender in uh, Hartford. She had a career change, so she was in Connecticut. And then I invited Karamet Ryder, who I mentioned, who is, a, a, you know, sort of a JD PhD, and she studies solitary confinement, just an amazing scholar and an activist. And so a lot of what the ABA does is it issues policies um, that are meant to sort of guide um, you know, judiciaries, the federal judici the federal government and state governments that say, well, this is what we think is in our considered judgment is uh, the policies that you should you should enact. Um, and, you know, these are our principles. And, and what is helpful about the ABA is that it has, uh, at least in the I'm most familiar with the criminal justice section, it has DAs and judges and public defenders. So it isn't you know, you are having to talk sort of across difference uh, and reach some consensus on that. And so the issues that we've worked on, uh, one of the issues that's really uh, near and dear to me is uh, prison phone calls. Um, you know, uh, your, your audience might not know this, but, you know, even though almost everybody or certainly everybody listening to this uh, has like at least three platforms that they can use to teleconference with someone for free. Right. But a 20 minute um, video conferencing phone call, a video conferencing call can cost $30 from a local jail. And the reason is that there are site licenses. Someone else might call them something else uh, where, you know, the there's revenue sharing between uh, the local government or the facility and um, the telecoms company that's offering that. So it is a revenue generator for these you know, local prisons, uh, local jails and for state prison systems. And so we were saying that, you know, this is a bad idea for a variety of reasons. One, you know, is it's, it's among the most regressive taxes you can possibly imagine. People who are in prison are 
a lot less affluent and have less wealth. So lower income and lower wealth. But it's also bad policy because, you know, the well, there's not necessarily a consensus on why we imprison, and there's not very good evidence in support of any of those reasons. But one of the things that we at least say is a goal of imprisonment is rehabilitation. And we also want to reduce recidivism, making sure people don't end up back in prisons and jails. And one of the most effective things you can do about that is to make sure that people have contacts with people who are not inside, who are on the outside, and they can start to sort of uh, grease the skids a little bit to make sure that when they transition back out, they're like, you know, I really miss my kids and I'm, I'm in their lives and I really want to turn this around for them. Or, you know, I rekindled these other sort of what in the academic literature are called pro-social relationships, you know, so, so folks who are not involved in, you know, criminal activity. Uh, and, and the harder we make that, the more we say, well, the only people that you know and the only people you talk to and the only experiences that get represented are other folks who are in prisons and jails. And that's just a terrible way to do things. So it's a bad, it's bad economics. It's bad in terms of, you know, we end up paying much more for recidivism than we can possibly hope to gather from, you know, these sort of 15 $20 phone calls. And, you know, it's, it's cruel to the children, right, who lose access to their parents, right? You know, for women, 80% of women prisoners in state prisons were the primary caregiver for their kids. Um, about half of men uh, have kids, right? They might not have relationships with them, but we want to encourage that. And the kids didn't do anything to have their parent go in there. So we want the kids to have, you know, contact with them. Um, so that was one that I was really proud of. You know, it was very difficult to get that through uh, when Ajit Pai was head of the FCC, which does, um, you know, which regulates that. And, you know, we've also done things about, you know, restoring Pell Grants to uh, prison university programs. So we issue these policies and then it's really up to either members uh, of the committee or other folks to say, hey, you know, the ABA says we should do this. And that is persuasive, you know, precisely because we have the buy-in of, you know, um, DAs, you know, uh, public defenders and judges. It's not seen as being, you know, just a sort of, you know, Brookings or Pew or something like that. One of the, you know, left-ish leaning, you know, think tanks, it's seen as being like, well, this is sound policy. So that's a lot of the stuff that we do. Well, and, and that's really interesting because, um, you know, I've, I have a lot of contact with people in prison and, and one of the problems during COVID that a lot of people don't think about is they, they had for a good period of time, uh, their, their in-person visits shut down. So their yep. only access to yep. their family was over these uh, video conferencing or um, a, a phone call and you know, it, it seems like it's gotten better, but, you know, GTL used to be really expensive. Yeah. And so, I mean, and that, this is one of those issues that, that, I mean, there's not a lot of great news when you work in the prison field, but there are some things that really get your goat. And that, that's one of mine is, is that these are just so extortionate. Like I, you know, I haven't, Nobody here has paid, that, that is listening to this, has paid probably, I mean, I'm old enough where I can remember where I'd be like, ooh, a dollar a minute to call, you know, Hawaii from Atlanta. But, you know, people think that those days are long in the past. It's like, no, 
you know, in some places calling 15 miles away is going to run you at least a dollar a minute. And, and, and there's just, there's not a, there's no justification for that. And that, that really, yeah, it's, it's horrifying. And, you know, moreover, right. It's not even, so Charles Dickens came and he looked at, uh, you know, the penitentiaries in Philadelphia, you know, in the early 1800s. And he said, wow, you know, they don't, you know, there was a, the sort of, uh, wall, the, the Philadelphia model was solitary confinement plus work. And the Auburn model was congregate labor, right? But labor was a very big part of how, at least the theory behind how we could make people, you know, conform to, you know, society, societal norms. And, um, these dogs are just reminding me of, you know, what happens without, you know, the street, <laughs> they're in the state of nature. Um, but the, uh, but, you know, when, when Dickens came, he said, wow, people go insane in these solitary confinement. And we, so we've known that for at least, you know, for almost 200 years. And when you think about COVID and no human contact, you know, that was just the, that is a psychological harm in addition to the fact that you know COVID protocols were so limited in prisons and jails. My colleague Hadar Abiram at, um, at Hastings has written a lot about the ways in which prisons and jails were actually vectors for spreading disease, for spreading COVID into the surrounding community. You know, so so no one is everyone is downstream of everybody else. We are all connected, whether we like it or not. Yeah, and I, you know, I I think you know we've learned a lot, but it. it it always seems like, and I, I just finished reading the book, um, Breaking the Pendulum, but, uh, you know, it just seems like we've learned a lot and yet we make the same mistakes over and over again when it comes to incarceration. Well, well, the joke that I say to my students, and let me just be plain, I do not do sit-ups. If you could see my lower abdomen, you would know that. But it is the difference between the theory of sit-ups and doing sit-ups. You can read all you want about the theory of sit-ups. It's not going to make you stronger, right? So these are not problems of ideas a lot of times. They are problems of building that muscle. So can we actually get to the point where we say, yeah, we know this is not working. Let's actually try to build something else. Let's try to strengthen our muscles. Let's try to you know, work on our compassion. Let's try to envision something different. You know, instead, I think we go back to saying like, yeah, well, that would be a good idea, but we can't do that. And why is that? Well, because we haven't, you know, we haven't actually done that first. You got to start somewhere. Right. And, and, and we have trouble sometimes doing that. So I understand you also did some work on the blue ribbon panel on uh, marijuana legalization. Um, and you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, you're probably uh, slightly older than me, but, you know, I, I was in high school in the 80s, and... I'm it, not it, older than you then, so okay. I graduated high school in 88, so, yeah. Okay, so, yeah, I graduated in 91. Okay, um, yeah. So, slightly. Uh, okay, but so slightly. Bottom line is, you know, we've come a long way, um, you know, since that time when it seemed inconceivable that we would ever have legalization. How did you get involved in uh, that uh, issue? So one of the classes that I teach is criminal procedure investigation, which is all about the, you know, uh, the Fourth Amendment and, you know, um, 
uh, and and really the death of the Fourth Amendment, as, as far as I'm concerned, how little it protects you. And, and, you know, the burnt odor of marijuana has been used as either reasonable suspicion or probable cause to search people. Um, you know, that was a staple of, of law enforcement techniques. And I am somebody who thinks that, um, you know, the government should, I'm, I think that the Fourth Amendment is great. And I think that moreover, I think if you are an originalist, you understand that the sort of size and scope of the state in uh, criminal justice is totally unprecedented for what we had, um, you know, in 1789 when, you know, the Bill of Rights was, was actually ratified. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, of course, it's complicated by the fact that, you know, millions of people were enslaved and they had zero rights at all, you know, so when we can complicate that, but, but my impulse was to say that if we take away, um, you know, sort of marijuana as um, a tool that can be used to stop and frisk people, uh, to search their cars, you know, things like that, um, that that is going to shift the power balance in terms of what uh, law enforcement's relationship with the citizenry. Now, I wasn't one of those folks who thought, well, everybody in California prisons is there because of, you know, marijuana possession. Like we actually, at the time of Prop 64, there were very, very, very few people serving any kind of long sentence for any kind of marijuana, you know, let alone possession. That is not true in states like Louisiana, where there are people who are serving long sentences for simple possession of marijuana, right? But that's not, you know, the story that you sometimes hear where it's like, you know, you could let out every single marijuana offender in the United States and we would still have uh, racially skewed and way, you know, we'd still be the number one incarcerator, right, in the world. So that's not what's driving it. But what I think is, important to remember is that something short of prison actually does have an effect on people's lives. So the studies are pretty good in suggesting that, um, you know, youth who are adjudicated as juvenile delinquents actually sort of grow into that label. So any contact with the criminal legal system, and it's not, it's not the criminal system when you're a juvenile, it's, you know, it's this weird, it's what would be a crime if you were an adult. And, you know, so the juvenile justice system is its own strange hydra. Uh, but I, you know, but even being arrested, right? Consider that if you are, um, you know, somebody who is likely to be arrested for uh, marijuana possession, right? We know those are very racially skewed. There's a, you know, a landmark study by the ACLU is sort of eight to one in places like Minneapolis. And it's, you know, about three and a half to four to one uh, nationwide, right? So there's a legitimacy problem there. Who gets arrested? White people and black people. And this was the study was, you know, Afri people of African descent, people of European descent, smoke pot at roughly the same rates. Um, and yet the arrest rates are very different. Maybe there is something about where people smoke pot, but there's not really any compelling evidence about that, that, you know, it's not like you know, African-American people are lighting up on the steps of the police department and, you know, white people are doing it like in an underground bunker that nobody can reach. Right. You know, so so I I think there was there is an equity part there because even being arrested. Right. If you're an at will employee um, and you can't make your you, know, you can't make bail. Right. You're going to end up being in jail for a long time. Like there are significant costs even to being also arrested. An access even. point to the police, because 
you know, if you're somebody sitting on the street smoking a joint, then all of a sudden they, they can approach you. And so even if they don't do anything about the marijuana, maybe they find something else on you. Yeah. And that was really my thought, right? Is to say, okay, you know, let's, and the other thing is that, so I actually am kind of idiosyncratic about this. Um, I, I say it's civil regulation of cannabis consumption rather than criminal regulation of cannabis consumption. And because that's the way we were treating it, right? It's not like when we say legalization, there's still limits. Like you can't drink and drive either, right? You can't, you know, you can't be 16 and drink alcohol. And so alcohol consumption is regulated. Alcohol distribution is regulated. You know, I can't make distilled spirits and sell them, right? You know, so so it's the question of, should this be a matter where we are we are enforcing what we see as being beneficial rules and we can set aside whether or not the rules that we ended up with are beneficial at all but who should be in charge of enforcing those and and the question is who's getting better if we you know uh who's being served by saying well, we're going to actually send you to jail rather than we're going to fine you or we're going to re-educate you or we're going to take away your license or, or those kinds of things. So that was really it is that I didn't see, there's no evidence that the criminal uh, regulation of, of cannabis worked. And the joke that I always have with my students, I mean, you know, each year it gets worse. Uh, it gets less funny, but I'm like, well, for those of you who are in California, you know, pre-Prop 64, you remember that nobody in your high school ever smoked pot because, you know, it was illegal, right? Which is, of course, a total joke because it didn't do anything about make. It just meant that you were more likely to get adulterated products and, you know, all sorts of other things where, you know, I don't think that young people should smoke pot. You know, I, I don't think it's good for your brain. I mean, it's not a vegetable, right? It's not, I don't think you should drink either. I don't think you should, you know, do tobacco, but I understand people do, and you shouldn't be kicked out of high school for that. And there should be other ways of reaching you other than saying like, well, here you go, you know, welcome to the system. Uh, you know, we really want to lift you up, not sort of shut you out. Um, so I, I want to shift gears. Um, another interesting issue, and I've actually uh, been down in Santa Clara uh, at the old jail uh, covering this issue. Um, but um, yeah, so there's proposal for new jail. Um, your thoughts on that? So I want to lift up. Um, there are lots of grassroots groups that are working on this. Um, and the one I know best is uh, Silicon Valley Debug, which is um, the executive director is a guy named Raj Devayadev, who's awesome. Uh, and Raj is actually one of those people where, you know, when I when I finally met him in person, I was like, anything you want, like if there's any if there's any research I can do, you know, uh, please let me know. Right. So things that he's like, well, I think this is it. You know, can you find, you know, some stuff or this is our lived experience? You know, what what? what does the research say? And, um, and I think that that's really helpful, right? I mean, I think that's sort of my orientation. So, you know, it was came to my attention that there was you know, this existing campaign. So I joined an existing campaign led by Silicon Valley Debug and lots of other grassroots groups. But, you know, what I wanted to do was, I, you know, so it was just law professors who were, who worked in Santa Clara County for us to say, you know, what really is this the best we can do? Now, I understand 
that the existing jail has lots of problems, right? And so there is this sort of prisoner welfare component to it that says, yeah, you know, if we have jails, they need to actually be up to code. But, uh, you know, my my late professor, Joan Peter Celia, who was a dear mentor of mine, you know, her, what she would always tell us in class, and this is, you know, sort of received wisdom in, in criminology is build it, fill it, right? So if you build a carceral facility, you can't really repurpose it to do anything else with it, right? I mean, that's a real problem. And, and the sort of, um, when we went through our prison building boom in California, where we built 20 prisons in 21 years, um, you know, we only really accounted for the cost of building. The way we floated bonds is they were supposed to be revenue bonds. Nobody's making money out of prisons, right? I mean, it was a very, you know, shell gamey kind of thing. But, you know, so even when we talk about the cost, so, so the Santa Clara County Jail, the new jail is supposed to be about $390 million. But that's the, that's the cost of the building, maintenance, you know, uh, operations, staffing, all those things are going to be more, right? And this is not contrary to, you know, all the bond measures that were floated under Duke Mason. This is not an investment that yields any results. This is often what you see in like small towns who are like, we're going to get a prison here and we're going to, you know, we're going to build around that. Nobody wants like Soledad, you know, nobody wants to go there because it's like, what do you know about Soledad? It's a prison. (laughs) So it's not like everyone's like, yay, I want to raise my family near, near prison. There aren't ancillary, you know, kinds of it's not like Silicon Valley. Right. And so so the 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 campaign that Debug had uh, and with their coalition partners uh, was to say, let's invest this in more, what are sometimes called front end issues, right? So thinking about why do people end up in the criminal legal system? What is going on with them? Well, for a lot of them in California in particular, right? It's being unhoused and go to the bathroom. That's against the law because it's in public, right? And it's, you know, it's a function, you know, loitering, trespassing, all those things. There are folks who are traumatized, who end up self-medicating with alcohol and other drugs. You know, that's the whole adverse childhood experiences, um, you know, which Nadine Burke Harris, our you know, California Surgeon General, has, has talked so eloquently about, right? And so, um, and then, you know, I think there's also sort of a, a, a trauma or um, under-policing problem. You know, you often hear people say this, that we have over-policing on sort of quality of life stuff and under policing when it comes to real violence, right? So the murder clearance rate and the clearance rate is just arrest in, you know, sort of more marginalized communities. And when I say marginalized, I mean, either poorer or not white, right? You know, so politically marginalized, Um, the clearance rates there are less than 50% often, right? So in Brentwood, LA, where you know, rich folks live, clearance rate is, you know, in the 60s or 70s. But, you know, in, you know, sort of South Central Los Angeles, it's, it's, you know, it's much lower than that. And so those are three things that I would really focus on, right, is to say, like, well, how do we do violence interruption? How do we sort of, and some of that is also due to trauma, right? And, you know, sort of, but how do we deal with the root causes of 
drug usage or mental health problems, right? Mental health is not always, I mean, we always have this sort of linkage of mental health with violence. And that's, I think it's a really pernicious thing. I'm not trying to say that, but I do think that mental health and, and sort of problematic usage relationships with substances is, is real. And then there's being unhoused. And so the campaign said, why are we not spending, you know, this $400 million on that? We would get a lot more investment. We would get a lot more bang for our buck for that, right? Because everybody who is, you know, sort of suffering from trauma and who has an unhealthy relation, you know, some form of substance use disorder is not living their best lives. And, you know, it's, it's, that's not, that's not a flourishing society. And yes, we should treat people who are in the criminal legal system with dignity and they should have a safe place to live. But we should look and see, like, are we guaranteeing that or what are we doing to make sure that happens to people when they're five, six, seven, you know, when they're 20, when they're 80, when they're 90 and they're not in jail? Like how, why are, let's think about how people are housed and how they are treated outside of jail and invest the money there in addition to, you know, the jail. So that's really what, um, and that's what, you know, our letter said. Uh, and our letter does acknowledge, and I think it is important to acknowledge that our existing facilities are bad, but also trying to think about how would we imagine, you know, um, ultimately reducing our reliance on jails. What do we think jails do? What is our evidence in support of that? And you'll find, ironically, that the cupboard is a little bare when we have a theory of like, how do, how do, how do prisons make people better? How do prisons work on incapacitation? How do prisons work in terms of sending a retributive message to people? Those are all the supposed justifications for imprisonment. And there's not a whole lot of evidence in support of that. Yeah, and I, I think this uh, goes to kind of uh, maybe my final question here, um, which is, you know, how do we kind of, I'm not an abolitionist, but I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to incarceration. I, I, I think we incarcerate way too many people for bad reasons. And, you know, there are clearly uh, people that need to be incarcerated um, because they're a danger to society and themselves. But I think that number is actually pretty small, um, right. at least as a percentage. So how do we get from, you know, this kind of massive carceral system to a point where it kind of makes sense, but, you know, it doesn't drive people's fear that crime's going to explode? So one thing for me is always, you know, sort of looking at history. And when Ronald Reagan was governor of California, the prison population declined, right? And it was possible then for a conservative governor to you know speak about things differently and i think that that would be a surprise to a lot of people right so that's one thing that i'm that i'm always interested in but the other thing um so my most recent article you know actually does address this it is called the peter parker problem and yes it's about spider-man um and the thinking was that I was having lots of conversations with people when I was working on bail reform, you know, sort of pretrial population reduction, that people would always say, well, if I let this guy out, what if he does something bad, right? And, and you know, Peter Parker, for, you know, you and, and your audience who don't know, right, like, 
you know, when he before he's Spider-Man, he sees a guy running down the hallway and the policeman asks him to stop him. And Peter's like, it's not my deal. Right. And then later, his beloved Uncle Ben gets killed. And it's the same guy he could have stopped and his regret. And like, we feel terrible for Peter. Right. And the reason why I use this is because it's cartoonish, but it works. Right. It works. We're like, man, I would never do that. And so we think about the one person who might fail everybody or I would I would imagine that a, a large number of folks uh, in your audience would know who um, Willie Horton is. He was one of only two people who failed on the furlough program that Governor Michael Dukakis, you know, had in 1987. Two people. It was 99 percent successful. And it was 50 years ago. And if there were lots of Willie Hortons, we'd still we'd hear there'd be somebody's name besides Willie Horton. And so it's so persuasive to us that we're like, we can never let that happen, that we ignore the fact that we are, that there are real costs to people who are involved in the system. So if you take bail, right, you're not convicted of anything. But if you are cooling your heels in jail because one person might do something, and so nine, 99 people are kept in jail, we need to count those costs. We need to move those costs, those system costs to the forefront of our mind and say to ourselves, you know, how, how are we thinking about this? Are we thinking about this the way we think about plane crashes, which are far more rare than automobile crashes, right? We live with the fact that driving is dangerous. We live with the fact that tens of thousands of people die in car accidents because we know that there is utility and benefit to driving. And there is utility and benefit to not having people in jail. And the cost is occasionally there is a sensational crime. But we don't know who's going to commit those crimes. We can't, we can't judge with any certainty who it's going to be. And so we have to prioritize. You know, I think that, so I would say, getting back to my original point about history, the context here is that the United States incarcerates more people than any other human society at any point in human history. And so either we have something figured out that no one else has, and we are at the pinnacle of, you know, human development, or we are an outlier. And I think it's way more likely that we're an outlier and we're getting something wrong than that every other human who ever lived got, got it wrong. And so once we understand that, then we can say it is, I mean, there's no question. I had a very good friend who was murdered right after college. That was terrible. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible thing when somebody you love dies. It's a terrible thing when somebody you love gets assaulted. It's a terrible thing. So I understand that. But I'm not looking to incarcerate, you know, a thousand people because my friend, you know, was killed. It was a murder-suicide. It was horrible. You know, I, I'm not, I don't know. That's not going to bring her back. Her name was Erica Kurtz. May she rest in peace. You know, that's not going to bring her back. And I think that that's, that's a really bitter pill to swallow, that, that terrible things happen. I get the human impulse to say, let's do anything we can to avoid that kind of pain. But we are causing pain in the meantime. And we are causing pain to, in terms of pretrial, to people's families, right? We're making them poor. They might lose their primary breadwinner. They might become homeless as a result. Kids lose access to their folks you know, who are behind bars. It's really, really disruptive. 
And I think that we need to get beyond that sort of cartoonish Peter Parker mindset of like, well, next Willie Horton got to avoid that and really stop and, and slow our minds down and say, actually, that's not the way it works. And when I say slow our minds down, there's the Thinking Fast and Slow, the Daniel Kahneman book that talks about, you know, sort of our, our fast minds that jump to conclusions and our slower minds that allow us to think that out. So that's the best I can offer there. But it's going to take lots and lots of conversations like this one and, and many others for us to figure out, like, who are we as a society and, and, and how seriously um, do we take the lives of people who are system impacted as well as outside? Yeah, and what you were talking about, especially, you know, with pretrial and what happens if you release the wrong person is exactly a conversation I had with Chesa Bodine, the San Francisco DA, right, right after he got elected. Um, I asked him, you know, what what his biggest concern is. And his biggest concern is, you know, if we do bail reform, what happens if we release somebody who does something awful? Right. And sure enough, one of the reasons he's in hot water is the McAllister case uh, where where the guy was released and ends up uh, uh, hitting and killing two people on uh, on a sidewalk in a stolen car. Uh, and sure enough, that that becomes, you know, uh, the poster case for his recall. And so, you know, um, you know, you could think of that as as the modern day Willie Horton uh, there, you know, 99 out of 100 people uh, probably have been released and had no problems. But the right. one person that doesn't becomes the reason to remove this guy from office. Right. It's an indictment of the system. And and I think that, you know, one of the other problems that we have in the criminal legal system is that we have cases that have system impacts, but they're not necessarily considered. Right. So I think if you if judges were, you know, if we had a different system, judges are like, OK, here are 100 people. You 10 are the most dangerous. Right. The 90, the other 90 of you go free. But instead, it's one by one. Well, this guy could be one of the 10 most dangerous. And so lo and behold, at the end of 100 people, you're like 100 percent of them are in the 10 percent most dangerous category <laughs> rather than saying, oh, I'm going to look at you comparatively. Right. And so. So I'll just say one other, you know, one other thing I know we're running up against time is, you know, one of the things that I have thought would be helpful are system constraints. And so I think that we should not have any county in this state where there are more jail beds than there are mental health and drug treatment beds. And I know that there are problems with compulsory mental health. You know, I saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest like everybody else. And, you know, I understand that the way in which, you know, there are compulsory aspects to uh, to drug treatment. But nevertheless, I also know that we hear reports from time to time in the state where the judge says Humphrey is one example. Henry Humphrey, the, the you know California bail case um, where somebody is qualified for and could go to drug treatment, but there aren't there isn't space. And so they go to jail. So everyone has said you this is what you need but we don't have it but we always have room at the jail right same with mental health you know there have been some bay area counties recently that have that have gotten in trouble for that where it's like well you need mental health treatment but all we have is jail which is a terrible place to go for somebody who you know has psychosis or you know schizophrenia or, or any of those things 
And so I think if we said, well, let's make sure, and this gets back to sort of my conversation about the, the building the jail in, in, um, in Santa Clara County, right? We need to actually fund our values. Budgets are moral documents. That's what the Poor People's Campaign and, and a lot of the Black Lives Matter work has, has, come, has come around to, and I've learned a lot from them, right? Is to say, well, where are the resources? There seem always to be resources for jail and prison and stuff like schools and you know poison control centers and things like that, that's optional. And I don't think that's right. Um, so that's something that, you know, if we're gonna have beds to incapacitate people while they work on their stuff, it should be that we have at least as many drug treatment beds as jail beds and at least as many mental health treatment beds as jail beds, because otherwise jail becomes the de facto treatment for that and that doesn't work for anybody. It doesn't work for people who are awaiting pretrial who have to deal with somebody who's having a mental health crisis. It's scary if you're not a trained person, sometimes actually even scary if you are a trained person, right? It's scary to witness somebody going through withdrawal, right? People die because they don't have, you know, access to if their their bodies have become accustomed to opiates, right? So all of those things where I want to say, you know, let's let's actually figure out what we need and let's put some money behind that. Well, we are out of time. Um, thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your experience. Uh, been very uh, enlightening to hear your thoughts. Uh, David Ball, who is a law professor at Santa Clara. Uh, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.